Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. We're glad to have you aboard. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, Vice President of the American Maritime Partnership and Chair of the AMP Offshore Wind Committee. Today, as we focus on Earth Day and sustainability in the maritime industry, we are very pleased to have as our guest, Troy Patton. Troy is the Chief Operating Officer of Orsted Offshore North America, which is a global leader in renewable energy. Welcome, Troy, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jen. I'm pleased to be with you today. All right, let's get started. Uh, why don't we begin at the beginning with a little bit of an introduction to Orsted. When you meet someone in the U.S. who's never heard of the company, what do you tell them? Yeah, so I, I usually start with a little bit about myself and who they're talking to. And, you know, I've been in power generation for 30 years. I served in the U.S. Navy. I did operations and maintenance on an aircraft carrier and then later on a submarine in the Atlantic and in the Pacific Oceans and then moved on to different developers. I worked for General Electric. I worked for Vestas over in Denmark for a time. And so for me, it was quite a journey to get to this spot and this place on the back in the U.S. and in the U.S. East Coast helping Orsted put in uh, a, a, a huge pipeline onshore and offshore of renewable energy projects. Orsted itself has been through its own journey and transformation. 15 years ago, Orsted was the Danish oil and natural gas company. And, and over the course of the last decade and a half, they've been able to really transform themselves uh, as they embraced clean energy and divested fossil assets and became kind of the first clean energy major. So I talk about Orsted as you know, 6,000 strong globally, over 300 employees in the US. We've got over two gigawatts of installed assets onshore. We've got a pipeline of over five gigawatts offshore to install and actively working seven projects up and down the Eastern seaboard in, in offshore wind. So it's extremely exciting for me to be back in the US, to be with a company that has such a large existing footprint and then the portfolio that we have to build up and down the East Coast. And, and that's what Orsted is now. I mean, reaching into the supply chain into 44 different states around the country in the US, we're active in 15 states with operating projects and development. We've got 500 megawatts under construction right now in Texas and Nebraska, and, and aim to, to really expand that footprint both onshore and offshore in the US over the next decade. Oh, that is a great foundation. So Orsted is considered, as you say, one of the most sustainable energy companies in the world. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about your company's philosophy of sustainability? What does that mean to you? Yeah, it was a really, I think it's a big recruitment uh, aspect for us in, in attracting new employees and some of the best in the industry. They want to get involved in companies that are more sustainable. We define sustainable sustainability, I guess, in, in a number of different ways. I mean, there's a sort of traditional way to talk about a sustainable company. So very focused on emissions, protecting biodiversity, promoting economic justice and fairness, social inclusion, health and well-being of employees and, and our suppliers, uh, access to quality employment around the country. You know, we also think about creating a sustainable supply chain. So this is something I've had a lot of experience with in the last decade in Europe, has seen a number of businesses really product and service providers to the industry onshore and offshore start and fail after an initial uh, initial project or two. And so I think the perspective we're bringing to US supply chain development and our employees is that we wanna build a community of products and services that are sustainable in the long-term, good for the environment, 
uh, profitable and competitive, not only globally, but, but up and down the Eastern seaboard. And that includes the Gulf and, and the West Coast. Oh, that's great stuff. Tell us a little bit about some of your top renewable, ener renewable energy projects in the U.S. market. Yeah, I guess I'll start with a, a project that we just announced uh, in, in the last month, and that's a, a green hydrogen project in partnership with Maersk. So Maersk is one of the largest shipping companies in the world, and we announced a project, a green fuels project, where we would use, use sustainable energy to produce a green molecule that would produce a, that would, that would manufacture green fuels to supply the shipping industry globally. So Maersk's fleet renewed out of, out of the Gulf Coast. You know, and it's a way to bring together all of the competencies at Orsted to deliver in a sector heavy transport at sea that's been really hard uh, to, to, to get to, to think about ways to do that, uh, that can be profitable for all, everybody all the way around and, and really sustainable for the environment. So that's one, you know, it's, it's easier to talk a little bit about, you know, the first offshore wind farm in the United States, Block Island, Off-Road Island, which we own and operate today. And that's a good place to start. We've installed a couple of turbines for, for Dominion Energy down in Virginia are the other two. So there's seven offshore wind projects, uh, offshore wind turbines that have been installed in the U.S. We just kicked off construction at the beginning of the year for our first uh, utility scale wind farm, which is going to be South Fork Wind Farm off the coast of New York. Uh, we kicked off the onshore construction this year uh, in Long Island for that be followed by offshore construction and, and commissioning next year. So super excited about that. We have some of the largest projects in the world going into New York and New Jersey later in the decade that we're, that we're really excited about. On top of, as I mentioned, you know, the continuous development that occurs with our folks in onshore, both in, uh, in wind and solar and storage and, and really rapidly emerging uh, hydrogen and e-fuels business. Oh, that is a lot of really exciting stuff. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. So on offshore wind, tell us, Troy, for folks who are kind of still getting their brain around this emerging market, what are some of the key differences between building out an offshore wind farm versus an onshore wind farm? Yeah, I guess if you didn't know better, you just look and say, okay, the roads connecting the turbines are on the water, so you're going to need a boat and not a truck to service the turbines. But it's, it's a lot more than that. Uh, I mean, you can appreciate, Jen, more than most operating in an offshore environment is very different. You know, from a design standpoint, you've got to think about corrosion in a way that you just don't uh, in the onshore environment. And the kit we're talking about, so the turbines themselves, the foundations, the cables, the offshore platforms that become these substations that actually uh, sit offshore are much larger than anything people are used to uh, onshore. If I think about 20 years ago building onshore wind, you know, if you drive through the Midwest or you drive through Texas and California, you can kind of see the evolution of wind turbines there. This kit is, is, is an order of magnitude larger than anything that was there. I was in the Gulf last year offshore talking to some oil and gas folks about the kinds of lifts that they do offshore to install oil and, oil and gas platforms. You know, those are about 25% of the size of what we're going to need to in install that South Fork wind farm project next, next year. 
So just massively different capabilities to bring to bear. Uh, offshore logistics uh, becomes much more important than logistics onshore. You can think about forgetting a tool or forgetting a piece of the procedure or a part when you're offshore means the job doesn't get done and the whole day's wasted and the clock starts ticking on the cost of that as soon as you pull away from the key side. So you have to plan maintenance, you have to plan installation and construction in a way that's much more critical to anything that gets done onshore just due to the offshore logistics, the time frame, and the cost uh, and the cost associated with it. Really interesting stuff. I heard a colleague of yours use the phrase uh, within the last couple of months, offshore wind is a maritime industry. So I'm interested, unpack that a little bit. Tell us how, since this is the American Maritime Podcast after all, uh, how the maritime industry fits in to the build out of offshore wind. Yeah, I, I mean, ports are the gateways for our projects and we're investing in port facilities up and down the coast. That's where I spend a lot of my time traveling into some of these privately financed, publicly financed, or 3P even uh, projects. And there's a mix of all of that. We have two ports, Provport and Quonset in Rhode Island, that we're investing in over $40 million of upgrades with our partner Eversource for those. State Pier in New London, Connecticut, you know, just working down the coast. In New York, we're helping them reach, reach their goals with advanced foundation components at the Port of Coimans new operations and maintenance hub in Port Jefferson out on Long Island. Work your way down the coast. We've got an operations facility. They'll be uh, installed in Atlantic City in New Jersey. And then down in Baltimore at Trade Point Atlantic, we're investing uh, millions of dollars in port upgrades uh, and component marshalling and steel fabrication uh, all throughout the state of Maryland and New Jersey. So, you know, that really brings in the maritime industry. I don't think the, the U.S., the U.S. ports on the East Coast haven't been built for that kind of industrial usage in the same way that the European ports developed. And so it's just a massive uh, infrastructure dredging, quayside uh, capability for handling the weight that's coming in. You know, that's just in ports, Jen. And then I think if you talk about vessels, which is, I think, where most people's minds go to, uh, you know, you, you have to have the vessels for installation. You're talking about over 30 different kinds of vessels required to install the cabling, to do the surveys that are necessary throughout the project life cycle. These surveys are just not, up, uh, not just up front to characterize the seabed and the geophysics, but also to look at fisheries, to understand the, the impact of the fishing community throughout construction and the operational lifetime. I mean, these continue throughout. So you need to install cables, you need to install offshore, offshore substations, as well as turbines and foundations. Lots of different types of vessels uh, for monitoring coordination with the Coast Guard and other agencies uh, for, for safety, for training of, of maritime crew and uh, of skills-based crew that'll be working offshore. Uh, you know, I will emphasize, uh, Jennifer, because I've been on other panels with you before, Orsted is fully compliant with the Jones Act in all of the spreads that we put offshore. Uh, and we, we are requiring all of our contractors to be compliant. And that's been a real tenant of ours as we look to build out uh, up and down the East Coast. We put the first charter in place for Dominion to build the Charybdis, uh, the, the turbine installation vessel that'll put a lot of our North, Northeast programs uh, in the water off New York and New Jersey. We are in construction right now for the first Jones Act compliance service operation vessel with Edison Schwest. Uh, and that's using using shipyards that ECO operates in Florida, Mississippi, and Louisiana to build components all to come together to build the first SOV 
that'll be operated in U.S. waters uh, and, and fully compliant with the Jones Act. We're also, we just announced uh, the commissioning of another five crew transfer vessels uh, that'll be built by Blount Boats in Warrant, uh, Rhode Island, uh, and also in Quonset. So that's uh, just a piece of our commitment, both in the ports and infrastructure side and on the vessel side uh, to, to U.S. shipbuilding. Uh, we really appreciate you putting your money where your mouth is there. I think the domestic maritime industry looks at offshore wind and sees the biggest new market uh, in decades. So we are very eager to partner with Orsted and other wind developers to meet the president's very ambitious goal of generating 30 gigawatts of power from offshore renewable energy by 2030. What else can we do, Troy, on the maritime side to really partner with you and help our country as well as our respective industries achieve that goal? Well, I, workforce plan, training and development, I think, is, is critically important. This massive build-out is an opportunity for a lot of folks. I know I've been recruiting a lot out of Houston uh, in the oil and gas industry on the engineering, the procurement, and the construction side. You know, those large infrastructure projects uh, are similar to what we need, the, the skill sets that we need to build oil and gas, uh, from, from oil and gas to build offshore wind, obviously. And then, and then it's the people. So, I mean, in the end, you know, we say this a lot around our shop. I mean, process and money is important, but it'll end up being people that build and operate these projects for their life cycle. And so we really need to invest in the manufacturing community, in the service community. We've been working with uh, trade unions uh, for, I, we signed a memorandum of understanding a year and a half ago. I started negotiating with the national trade unions out of Washington, D.C., and the five labor presidents in the summer of last year, we hope to make that announcement very soon uh, in how we're going to use the national construction trades to help us construct offshore. It'll be a lot of skills-based training, uh, similar to what they're doing onshore. But as I said, the scale is very different. The safety aspects are very different when you're working offshore, as your, your team can, can, can elaborate on, Jen. I think collaborating with the maritime academies, again, it's, it's where we need, we need even more support. We've been working closely with SUNY. We had an event uh, at Maryland and, and MyTags just last week, and a number of partnerships that we're looking to to partner with mariners and help you know, all stakeholders understand what it means to have a, an offshore wind farm uh, off the coast. There are a number of other world-class training facilities that can be used to train people to operate safely offshore uh, and, and get used to life at sea uh, for a number of months as required during construction and then long-term operations in a wind farm that's that's going to run for at least 25 years uh, off, the, off the U.S. coast. So you think about that build out of the total federal workforce. We very much encourage uh, the use of a, a carrot approach and not sticks. So provide some incentives to train, train the workforce, uh, federal funding for programs to train the offshore workforce. I know the Offshore Wind Jobs and Opportunities Act, Maritime Technology Advancement Act have all been crucial in helping to fund some of these training programs and help people, especially in economically disadvantaged areas, uh, find opportunities that wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise present themselves. Oh, that's great stuff. And we really are, as you say, building out a whole new industry in the U.S. So there's just a massive amount of work to be done. Any particular challenges you would highlight about doing that here in the U.S.? I think, so trying to find transferable skills uh, within different US, uh, US industries is important. We, I mentioned oil and gas already on the engineering procurement and construction side. 
I think we see some transferability from onshore wind to offshore wind. And then a lot is just folks working on big infrastructure projects. So, I mean, that's a challenge is to find those people, to find them on the East Coast where they're needed uh, can also be a challenge. The, the, the bipartisan inf infrastructure bill was, was hugely important last year and bringing some funding to some of these efforts, but it also created some more infrastructure projects that frankly offshore has to compete with. So uh, it's not an area that we like to emphasize a lot, but we are competing with other infrastructure projects. And we think we offer you know, a long-term future that goes decades uh, rather than a, a short-term project that might just ask, last a couple of years. But if you know, the administration can employ some more of these carrots to get people into the field, I think they'll find an opportunity to, uh, especially in, uh, in, in areas that don't usually see those opportunities. So a lot of our environmental justice uh, initiatives in New York, in New Jersey, in some impoverished areas uh, with technical schools and the trade institutes that I mentioned will provide those opportunities. More, the more encouragement we can get from the administration and from Congress, I think the more we'll be able to incentivize people to make a switch to offshore wind and that it's a future that's really sustainable and an industry that's got a lot of legs here over the next couple of decades. Absolutely. Look forward to working with you on that. Troy, you, you've mentioned safety a couple of times, and that is just crucially important, obviously, to all of us who operate in shared waterways, whether coastal or inland. How are wind developers like Orsted balancing the goal of bringing offshore wind online in a timely manner with ensuring that projects are sited safely so that other vessels, other waterway users can operate safely in their vicinity? Yeah, and I mean, the safety has a lot of aspects to it. I mean, similar to sustainability. I mean, we think first off about navigational safety, the top priority for us. We do have a Marine Affairs staff in-house uh, and some former Coast Guard officials uh, and, and workers that, that work with us. Um, this, whole, this whole program is really de dedicated to robust engagement with, with maritime and fishery stakeholders, ensuring that we've got the spacing between turbines right, that we understand what happens in the case of emergencies or a storm or a stranded, a stranded mariner uh, or, or, or anything that can happen when you're offshore uh, trying to operate this machinery and equipment. And, and I mean the vessels here as well as the, the turbines and the offshore substation equipment. So that's one aspect is just maritime safety, navigational safety. The other piece is just uh, awareness of operating in a marine environment for folks to be aware when they're on board a vessel or they're on board an offshore structure, what sorts of things they need to look at, what sorts of PPE are needed and expected. So just that awareness training, it's health and safety training and understanding what types of uh, what types of PPE we employ offshore, making sure people are familiar with that. Uh, you know, it's a very different, uh, very different than training somebody to work onshore. So I think those two aspects uh, are something that we really keep top of mind together with our partners, Eversource and, and PSE&G in, in New Jersey, very focused as regulated utilities on safety onshore. So then translate translating that to the offshore environment. We have 28 offshore wind farms operating globally. And we've learned a lot about how to train people effectively for that environment, how to keep safety top of mind, how to do toolbox top talks inevitably when something happens, how to really focus on near misses, how to, how to, how to construct a series of leading and lagging indicators that you're on track for safety or you're maybe falling behind in safety and 
how to turn the dials there. So a lot of that's just experience. Luckily, a lot of the maritime folks that, that have been offshore for years, they get this inherently and understand it. So it's a matter of just explaining to the new workforce and making sure it stays top of mind for people offshore uh, that we focus on here in the U.S. Absolutely. We can have safety and sustainability. They really are two sides of the same coin. So looking out ahead a little bit, uh, as the U.S. transitions to an electric grid that is increasingly based on renewable energy, what are your projections, predictions over the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years? Uh, how much of that grid will be dependent on energy from offshore wind? Yeah, I think we, we think about offshore in most places in the globe as uh, most suitable in place where there's a strong wind resource. So where does the wind blow? The, blow? the wind blows really hard on the east and west coast of the U.S. to a lesser extent in the Gulf, but then where's the load? And if you have load, so a lot of people and industry concentrated on the coast, then you've got the right conditions to start thinking about offshore providing a really big piece of, of the generation equation. So on the east coast, obviously, like, like around a lot of the U.K., northern Germany, I think most of the Asia Pacific islands, you are land constrained very nearby those population centers, but you've got a strong resource offshore and you're able to you know, put your, plug your extension cord in uh, from your offshore wind farm and substation directly onshore where it's needed and provide a resource and, and green, green electrons that blow hard. So the wind blows hard and the sun shines you know, really hard in the, in the south and the Midwest. So I think there's the right mix of sustainable energy come plugging in. So the, the wind blows really hard. It blows day and night uh, when there's load and, you know, very high capacity factors offshore. So think about solar power in a lot of places in the 20s in terms of efficiency on a, on a year round basis. Onshore wind providing something in the 30s and 40s and offshore wind in the 50s and 60s in a lot of places. So you're talking about a, a great resource, a lot of technology bring, bring, bring coming to bear uh, on the grid up and down the East Coast. As you look at New York, New Jersey, PJM, really looking to reinforce the grid, make it more robust uh, and, and allow for more, uh, more, more offshore wind input. And, and that's really what we need. Absolutely. A lot of people, a lot of industry, a lot of demand, but a lot of potential, I'm hearing you say. Good stuff. I think so. So as we commemorate Earth Day 2022, uh, what other initiatives, any additional efforts that you'd like to highlight that Orsted is undertaking to promote sustainability? Yeah, I, 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 really, I really am encouraged by the focus from the states and the federal officials all over the world, but, but in the U.S. on sustainability and biodiversity and the idea that, I mean, Orsted has pledged by 2030 to be, to be carbon neutral, to be biodiversity positive on all of our projects over the next decade so that anything after commissioned after 2030 is net positive for biodiversity. And it really means focusing on what we're doing, what we're doing and how we're doing it in the supply chain, what we're doing during construction and what we're doing during, what we're doing during a life of, of operations. And so thinking about the power to X uh, e-fuels facility that we're talking about in the Gulf is really bringing a lot of that back net positive. If you look at the horseshoe crab initiative, the oyster initiatives that we have going on up and down the East Coast, it's really about understanding the environment that you're working in. You know, Chesapeake Bay very focused on sustainability for their ecosystem. The solution there is going to be different than something in the Northeast states uh, off the U.S. coast. 
going to, they have different needs and different elements of biodiversity that they're concerned about than the mid-Atlantic states. You go to the West Coast, a different set of issues, same with the Gulf. And I think recognizing that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution, listening to local stakeholders about what they're concerned about uh, and, and understanding that. Apply, I get excited about applying technology to a lot of those problems to help bring solutions. And Orsted's a company that can really do that given the experience that we've had in different parts of the world. So I get super excited about that for Earth Day all over the globe and the projects that we're working in all over the world, but but right here in the backyard off the U.S. East Coast today. Oh, I really share your excitement about this. I mean, to be sure, there are so many challenges associated with decarbonization and the quest for really zero environmental impact from our operations, but there is just so much dynamism to this field, so much opportunity uh, for the energy industry and for the maritime industry, and it is very exciting stuff to talk about on Earth Day and every day. Uh, Troy, before we close our podcast out today, I just want to give you the opportunity to uh, add anything else you think our listeners might be interested in hearing about related to Orsted's work or anything you want to put a little finer point on. The floor is yours. Yeah, I, I think the the Biden administration coming out with this goal of 30 gigawatts in 2030 was really important for the industry. I think the administration's been off, working awfully hard uh, from the White House down at putting the pieces in place to get us there, some through legislation, some through grant programs and scholarships, and then working with the states to understand what their individual needs are. And so I, BOEM, BOEM is a hugely important Department of Interior, Department of Commerce in getting these projects permitted, but it's whole government and kind of whole problem approach to these solutions that I think get the industry where it needs to go. The focus on sustainability and the environment and the impact that we're having is hugely important but I, I really applaud the, the, the federal and the state governments for their focus. The state targets are really driving a lot of the solutions that we need to see. You couple that with some of the federal initiatives. And I've, I've seen, I, I mean, it's, it's caused me, Jen, to move back from abroad to the U.S. to want to take the reins with both hands and really help this industry get going here in the U.S. And I'm so proud as an American to be back in the U.S. Uh, driving a lot of this onshore and offshore development uh, across the state. So I'm, I'm I'm just thrilled to see uh, the government taking the reins with both hands and, and the reaction from industry has been really unparalleled. I don't know that we've seen an effort like this ramp up in the short time that it has uh, in, in, in my lifetime here. So super excited to be a part of all of this. Happy to be with Orsted uh, trying to lead the way in a number of these uh, efforts and the broad participation across the industry from lobbying groups and, and other developers really working together we're much more powerful than if we're trying to do something our, alone. And I see a lot of uh, commonality of purpose here that gives me a uh, huge hope for the rest of the 20s. It's really great stuff. Troy, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing your insights today. I can tell you that the U.S. maritime industry shares your excitement. We look forward to partnering with companies like Orsted to build out offshore wind in the United States to promote environmental sustainability, energy security, and American jobs. That is all for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast. We thank everyone for tuning in today. We encourage you to share it with friends and colleagues and anyone else who might be interested in learning more about the intersection of domestic maritime and environmental sustainability. I'm Jennifer Carpenter, signing off. Mm -hmm.